Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't know. I, I use I spaces that. all the time. Pretty much any time I need to separate one word from another word, I use a space. Do you? <laughs> yeah. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 154 of the More Than Just Code podcast. My name is Timitra and I'm in Toronto, Ontario, and I'm joined once again by Mark Rubin in San Jose, California. Hello. And we're pleased to be joined by Greg Heo down in San Francisco, California. How's it going? All right. Okay. At least you didn't say hey now. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> that would just be silly, y'all. That's Tammy's thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, we have one sort of item of follow up and one, we're not sure if it's a follow up or main story, but we're going to go with, uh, main story, I guess, for now. But, uh, the president of the United States has has published this week that, or stated this week, that he has convinced Tim Cook of Apple to produce, to build three new man, build manufacturing uh, plants in the United States. And um, we've talked about this before. Like we were, so I think we were talking about whether when they met with um, all the tech leaders, whether Apple would be, you know, coerced into the Made in America program. I think the only product that Apple makes in the United States right now is the Mac Pro, if I'm not mistaken, right? I think so. I think it was, it's, it's Foxconn. That's what you're talking about, right? Uh, no, Apple. Um, okay, never mind then. What oh, right. Talking? I think I had seen a related article, not this one, that uh, Foxconn, the famous Apple, uh, Taiwan-based mm-hmm. manufacturer that makes a lot of Apple stuff, is building a plant in Wisconsin? I forget. Somewhere in the United States. Oh, okay. To build yeah, televisions, though. That. Televisions. Oh, okay, um, okay. So, not Apple, not related to Apple, but the thinking was, hey, if they are here, then why not they could shift some stuff to uh, build Apple stuff here as well. Uh, whether that would be a good thing or not, who knows, but there it is. So, I thought that's what you were talking about but um no three manufacturing plants all right yeah we were we, i think we were talking about one point about um whether um apple was going to be you know um coerced or forced or whatever into building plants in the united states because of the whole you know push to have everything made in america as much as possible right mm-hmm. so. yeah. well politics aside i mean having things made in america is in general a good thing all other things being equal um typically the reason stuff hasn't been made here is just cost uh it's usually cheap, cheaper 
cheaper to make it overseas so you can mm-hmm. charge less for the products. But, but you know, people have been saying for a number of years now that that's starting to change. It's not as cheap as it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago to build stuff over, overseas. Uh, so, you know, things are kind of balancing out a little bit. So so maybe the equation isn't so clear cut anymore and, and right, maybe it right. is reasonable enough. So, I mean, so it's, it's good. I mean, there's jobs for people here and, and uh, you know, the less shipping. Uh, so, you know, less less uh, fuel burned shipping things. So it's, right, yeah, it's carbon footprint. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, they were yeah. always they always said that cost of labor is not the dominant factor. It's other things like supply chain, what's available nearby, and mm-hmm. like you said, Mark, like because the cost of shipping has gone down so much over the last whatever it is since like containerization and beyond that they were like shipping is almost effectively free. It's like I, I forget like twenty cents or something to ship a you know a ton of stuff. I forget what it is, but it's very very cheap to ship stuff if you are not in a hurry. Um, but labor was not really the the big deal. So I don't know. It feels like like for the Mac Pro, they were just sort of doing final assembly or something like that here. Is that right? They weren't actually building it from scratch, so to speak, here. Were that's they? probably true. That's probably yeah. true. Okay. Uh, in fact, that's how when you remember, if you remember, uh, oh, I don't know when it was, probably 20 years ago when when the Japanese car company started building stuff here in the U.S. Mm, that's really right. what it yep. was. It yep. was, they shipped the parts over and, and assembled it. Yeah. I mean, that's how they start, right? Like when airplanes, like when they start, um, they started building like Airbus airplanes, like in Alabama, I think. And I think when they started building them in China, they would send them effectively like kits and then they would just assemble them there. Right. Well, we, we've had plants, like we have a Honda plant in Allison, Ontario, just north of Toronto, that back in the, you know, 80s or 90s, whatever, was was built here because there was an import tax on cars, right? Um, it was just the way the government kind of tried to keep the money, you know, in, in the big three, if, if, if I'm not mistaken. And um, because, of, you know, because of the competition from, and people were choosing to go with Japanese manufacturing. So in order to cut the cost of, se- of buying a car down, places like Honda and Toyota um, open plants here and it would and do the final assembly here in Canada so we, they could say manufactured in Canada or, mm-hmm. you know, hand-stitched in Canada kind of thing, right? So mm-hmm. I was like, the, the food labels, they say, you know, made in Canada with uh, foreign produce or I forgot what the exact word yeah. is, but, you know, they say something like that. Made in or Canada baked, baked with in store if it's like a baked something. good. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Baked in store, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, just a real-time follow-up here. I'm just, I found an article on uh, Mac Rumors saying that um, that the Foxconn is planning on building TFT LCD screens here, not yeah. just television. So, yeah. oh, I mean, obviously they're using TVs, TVs too, but they could also be used for computer monitors and laptops and stuff like that as well. Right? Mm-hmm. So unless we're moving away from TFT LCDs, you know. And Maybe we're on the OLEDs now, who knows? But uh, yeah, no, I think giant OLEDs. <laughs> I think there's, <laughs> I think TFT is still back there somewhere. So yeah, yeah. So more manufacturing. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Are they actually like, you know, I don't know, <laughs> pressing the crystals together here or are they just like screwing things together and putting them in boxes here? Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what uh, exactly what they're doing. Yeah, I also read somewhere too, and I just, I'm just looking for it right now, but um, that Apple is looking for someone to, uh, you remember how they had that? We had talked about this, I guess, two years ago about the fact that Apple was, had a bunch of money um, in, in Ireland. Like they had, they had facilities in Ireland and mm-hmm. they got some sweetheart deal or whatever. And apparently the European Union has sort of um, fined them, if you will. So now Apple has to sort of come up with some way to, some body to hold the money for them or something like that. I read that this week. I don't know if you guys have heard that one. Yeah, I have heard about that. They, they definitely got some very nice tax uh, advantages out of the Irish government that now is mm-hmm. subject to change and be fined. So it's, yeah. it's not yeah. clear what's going to happen. Payback time, yeah. 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 Here's the article I found. It was in the journal, the Irish journal, actually. The Apple, uh, Ireland is looking for someone to hold the hold on to the $15 billion from Apple that they uh, have been uh, asked to pay back in taxes. Interesting stuff. Which, again, isn't, I guess, in the grand scheme of things for Apple, that's not a, you know, it's a 
painful thing, but it's not super painful. Right? That's pretty painful, even for Apple. $15 yeah, million. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Even for yeah, Apple. I, I suppose, yeah. It's not going to put them out of business, but it's... Big chunk. Yeah, I wonder what the compounded daily interest on that is. <laughs> Just putting it in like a, uh, you know, a bank savings account, you mean? How much are they making on that? Well, no, when you owe the, when you owe the government taxes, at least in here in Canada, the, the interest is compounded daily or something ridiculous like that, right? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's a low, a low rate. I think it's higher than the prime lending rate, but yeah, it's not like it was back when I was in university, right? It was really painful back then. Anywho, yeah, so that's our um, our follow-up on... Manufacturing follow-up. Again. Alrighty. So uh, another piece that um, we're wanting to talk about was the um, Adobe has announced in their blog um, this month that uh, they are end of lifing Flash as a technology. I think by 2020 they plan to uh, not produce any more updates on that. So, and we've been, you know, we've been as iOS developers, you know, um, not being able to support it on iOS at all, uh, have, have sort of moved away from that. And Greg and I were just talking before the show. Both of us have spent our many hours creating Flash experiences for clients in our web development days. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I made yeah, plenty so. of uh, silly flash movies just for you know my own amusement and for like family as well. I should go find some of them and dig them up. But uh, yeah, it was quite the thing. I mean, originally it was just animations, and then eventually it's like right. I think very much how the web developed. It was like, oh, here's some text, here's some images. Oh my god, I'm going to center an image. This is madness. And then it was like, if only I could get a little information. And then we got forms, and it kind of grew from there. So I think Flash had a similar thing where it was like animations. It's like, well, we'll have some buttons too, and the buttons can do stuff, and then action script and all of that kind of came over and took right. over. It became like an application development kind of a thing rather than a... It was always a strange mix of timeline and then like an app development kit. It was very strange the way it was, though. Right, uh, right. Do, do you remember well, for- where when what version it was when Flash... I think the first time you installed it and you ran it, it would say, are you a developer or are you a designer? And it would change <laughs> It would change the toolbar to either go to like action script to right. like developer mode or it would show you the normal timeline with the keyframes and all that stuff. And that was like design mode. Do you remember that? Or am I making well, that, that yeah, might have, I think that might have been around uh, around the when, about the time Adobe uh, acquired uh, the technology and yeah and, okay uh, because I think MX um, I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago that we did, Flash yeah. MX was yeah. was and then they had the MX Studio and and that was uh, I don't know about you but for me every time I opened the app it, I could work for like five minutes and then it would crash and I would work for five more minutes and then it would crash and you had to constantly be saving but and it was interesting for me is it came out for me it came out with building animated experiences I started off in Macromind Director and I was talking to Don Melton about that, who was one of the people who worked on that technology back then. Um, but that grew into, uh, or did a lot of interactive websites for agencies and, and photo agencies and stuff like that, where they wanted to have, you know, their photos come in and transition around and have and, you know, as the, the as you moved your mouse on the screen, there would have some sort of like vertical, horizontal lines that would follow the mouse. And so I, a lot of what I flash I did was, was uh, with integrated with PHP and calling back to websites. So that's how I got into PHP and MySQL and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, I already mm. and putting all those three experiences together, you know. So it was a I think a couple of big fat books upstairs on uh, on the three technologies together kind of thing, right? So mm. yeah, it was a lot of and it was it was uh, the problem. What I what, and that's when I first started getting into compiled software because you you basically would script the stuff and then you would compile it. And then uh, I've had a lot of people bring me files like flash files, or, you know, the SWF files that are all compiled together, and there are tools to take them apart and sort of reverse engineer them as well. But because uh, a lot of customers 
developers would come to me with the final file, but they lost the source files. And <laughs> yeah, it yeah. was a, it's a lot, a lot of rescue jobs like that. So. I use those uh, flash decompilers. I remember those. Yeah. 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 They were, they were hit and miss, you know, in fact, I think I had to, I had to decompile a flash file just last year for a client just to sort of take it apart and say what was possible with it. Right. So, yeah, I think I did that to like extract assets a couple times, not because yeah. I needed like the source code, but just like, Oh, there's that image in there and I need it back or something like that. And I only have the, the Swift file. But yeah. Good right, times. Right. Yeah. You can never, you can never fully get anything back, you know, but uh, yeah, I was able, I was, uh, there was an interactive map that kind of like, you know, as you clicked on it, it would zoom in and twist and stuff like that. I was able to get the actual um, vector assets out of the file for these, for this client. Mm. So we're trying to, trying to do something for them on an iPad kind of ex- experience. Right. But yeah, so flash, ding dong, the flash is dead. Right. So, and again, as, as I, I mentioned on the show before that I've uh, stopped loading flash into my Safari because I find that, that flash just on top of Safari makes the whole experience really, you know, uh, buggy. And uh, I find that I get a lot of beach balling, like Mark was saying just before the show on in Safari, but I've had a much better experience with Safari since I've, I've consciously said no to flash. And you'd be surprised at how many times you go to a website that says, Hey, do you want to load flash? And I'm like, no, thank you very much. Cause there's a, a preference in Safari. You can say to, to not load it. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can load it as you need it kind of thing. Right. So, yeah. That's what I do. I have it turned off until and if I actually have to look at something that I yeah. ask me if I want it. But it usually, usually it has something to do with, with, if you go to a, a lot of times I'm going to a, a, a website for looking up things for the show and stuff like that and reading, you know, bl- blog posts and, and it's usually to load some sort of content into an ad, which is like, no, not really interested. Thanks very much. Sure. You know, so happy to, you you know, I miss it, but Hey, I don't miss it. The pain in the butt to work with and horrible to live with. All right. Okay. So who put, is this you, Greg, that put the static Swift libraries? You want to? <laughs> yeah, that's not really uh I thought there might be more to say, but there isn't really. So we can, we can skip over that other than to say yeah. static libraries now supported in Swift. The, uh, Oh, are Xcode they? Oh, nine beta four. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Cause we, <laughs> at work, we've been going through changing all of our stuff to dynamic libraries. So, yeah, I mean, I think the, uh, I was just talking about it with someone. I think the Apple suggested limit is like 12 dialibs to not affect mm-hmm. your um, main startup time. Uh, 12 is still a, you know, reasonably high number depending on who you are, what kind of company you are, but you know, statically linked stuff is, uh, will make the app itself larger, but should help with the startup time if that's a concern. So anyway, not, not having too many dialibs is one of those things to watch out for. And, um, I don't know, maybe some people just like static linking better. Anyway, it's now, uh, so, but there was kind of a hacky way to do it before, but yeah. now it's like officially, officially supported as of the latest beta, which is exciting for some people. So the inevitable question I think people have asked me is like, does this mean we have ABI stability, which is not, they're, they're different things. This is mm-hmm. kind of, I don't know, it has to do with a linker. Maybe it's related somehow, but it's not quite the same thing. So for those of the people listening who are driving at home or mowing the lawns, can you explain the difference between a static library and a dynamic library? Hmm, not really, but my understanding of it in terms of the linker is that if you have, you know, five object files, one has function A, one has function B, one has function C, let's just say three, A, B, and C, and three separate object files, and they each have a function and you want to link them together into a binary, then you use the linker, you link them all together, and then you get a single binary with three functions in it, which is all wonderful. Um, but then let's say A is the main program and you want to call B and C, then you might want to say, well, uh, uh, typically on systems, uh, like system libraries, you want to say, well, every app on the system is going to use AppKit or Foundation or whatever. And it would be silly for every app to bundle that in together to have to link in B and C. So instead, we'll just have B and we'll have C on the hard drive and everybody can link to it at runtime, like dynamically link it when you run, execute the program. And then that adds some complexity because it's like, what's the address of the function? Is it going to be in this address and this address? And you don't know. So dynamic linking is, well, they figured it out by now, but you know, a long time ago, it was a big deal. Um, so that's the basic difference. Do you want to bundle it into your executable and make your executable larger? Or do you want to use 
use like have it quote unquote shared. Um, but then the caveat oh. is that of course you can bundle a dynamic library into your application. So if I ship an application like on iOS, I can have dynamic libraries and they just get kind of bundled into the application. So they're not linked in like right into the executable, but they get sort of dynamically loaded in possibly later. So you don't have to load them in right at the start, yeah. maybe, but that kind of gets an asterisk too. Um, and also if somebody ships you a, if you're using like, um, I don't know, Crashlytics, if I can pick on them or something like that, then maybe they ship a dynamic library, like a dot framework, and they say, here, just link this in. And it just kind of dynamic, dynamically links it in um, kind of after the fact. That's my understanding of it. I'm not a yeah. compiler or linker expert, but there Another it is. big advantage is flexibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, with a with a static library, you, as Greg said, you have to link it in at build time. So if somebody ships you an application, then whatever is built into that, into that application using a static library is there permanently. The only way to change it is to is to build a whole new version of the app and send it out again. Mm-hmm. With the dynamic library, you don't have to do that. You can choose at runtime to use one library or a different library if you if you want to. Uh, so so if you have a certain piece of your app that never ever ever changes, but one section may change fairly frequently, well then in theory you could just ship your customers the the new dynamic library every time you want to make an update to that one section and just have them mm-hmm. do a runtime link there. Yeah, which is kind of how like if you build a iOS application and then the user upgrades their phone to like iOS 10 or iOS 11 or whatever and it's like oh my god how does your app still know how to draw to the screen you know it's like well the system libraries are like dynamically linked in that sense right so that's why you can upgrade the OS for example without having to upgrade the app this also if people are Windows users from a long time ago back in the days of DLL hell DLL is the Windows huh. was a dynamic link library, library or something like yeah. that yep. and yep. it'd be like I need version 3 of the DLL but I have version 2.7 and then your applications wouldn't run properly and it was horrible and I think early or maybe even now Linux with their SO shared libraries had the same kind of thing where you had to have the right version otherwise it wouldn't you know run properly and it's a runtime issue so users get very angry and so um, we seem to have gotten over that I haven't seen uh, I haven't seen lots of complaints about having the wrong uh, dynamic library version these days so is that a solved problem now or what I think reasonably solved okay good to hear I don't really run Windows or Linux anymore so I don't know all right so um, moving on we've uh, I I heard about this uh, earlier today and and Greg's happy he provided us with a link uh, for a new malware that seems to have appeared on the Mac um, systems. So can you fill us in there, Greg? Apparently been around for a long time, several, maybe five-ish years anyway. So the malware is called Fruitfly, and it can apparently do all kinds of horrible things, complete control, like scary things like turn on the webcam, look at all the files, the screen, and, uh, you know, keylogger, and all that stuff. It's a little bit mysterious. Apple has apparently patched it earlier this year, but there have been some variants and tweaks. I think the malware would phone back to certain servers, but those domains are all dead, so they say it's probably uh, not a concern, even if you do have the malware and wherever on your system that it is. Um, but apparently it had some special, not special, but interesting properties, like if your computer was, let's say, asleep, or not, the screen was asleep, and somebody was on the other end looking at it, then they could, like, snoop through your files and maybe, like, uh, screen sharing style, like, look around or whatever. But it had a special flag where if the user was active, like, they were moving the mouse around and typing on the keyboard, then it would send a signal to the server to say, hey, this person is active. And the theory is that somebody on the other end would like stop, like they wouldn't want to be found. So they would stop moving your mouse around and stop inspecting files until the malware signaled and said, hey, the person's no longer active now, you know, go wild kind of thing. Um, So they were saying it had some interesting properties like that. So there are a couple articles going into more detail that I haven't read about like exactly what it does. Somebody tried to set up a server that would communicate with it to see exactly what was going back and forth and so on. Um, I think the other interesting thing was this was hitting, uh, what did it say? Maybe about 90% of the victims seem to be in the U.S. And so 
So mm. it was um, it wasn't like heavy penetration, like ninety percent of Mac users. It was pretty small numbers from what I see. So it was kind of evenly spread out, but it seemed to be U.S. centric, which is maybe interesting. I don't know. Um, I'm thinking of like maybe not on this level, but like Stuxnet, you know, attacking Iranian um, nuclear or what were those things, centrifuges or something like that. Stuxnet. And they were saying, yeah, yeah, because they were like, well, they sold these uh, Siemens uh, whatever controllers all over the world, but why were they targeting the uh, ones installed in Iran particularly? Like they must have had some code in there. So if somebody says this particular malware was 90% US, that also seems, it could be coincidence, it could be by design, I don't know, but it just kind of reminds me of that because that seems awfully targeted. Maybe there are just more Mac users in the US, I don't know, but that number kind of jumped out as a point of interest. Uh, yeah. What else had you heard about it? You said you heard about this earlier this week, Tim. No, it's just a, a colleague from the old uh, Apple Consultant Network had tweeted out about it because uh, he, you know, informs his clients about these kind of things as they come up. And yeah, I just sort of read quickly about the fruit fly and as you said before, um, that it could capture your uh, input from your camera and key log what you're typing and that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, okay. never good. And I mean, I do, I do, you know, people have laughed at me in the past, but I do have a couple of uh, malware scanners on my Macs and, you know, because you, you never know when the day is coming, right? So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's apparently a Black Hat conference in Las Vegas. I saw a funny tweet. I don't know if you saw this, but the UPS desk at some hotel in Vegas said like, you know, like they have a UPS center in the hotel. They'll like mail stuff and they have a printer a workstation for you to print stuff out. Right, and they right. had a sign saying, thanks to the conference, we will not accept printing of anything via USB key. You must like, nice. bring, I forget what it said, but <laughs> because apparently, you know, people from the conference put stuff on the USB keys, ask the person to print it out and then they take over the network or whatever. So special right, for this right. week, they shut that down. Anyway, the end of this article says that uh, there's going to be a talk at the Black Hat conference about this particular malware. And I believe it's today, like the day that we're recording. So maybe uh, after this or maybe next week, you guys can have some follow up and see uh, there is more int- interesting technical details about this thing. Sure. That was scary. All right. And one more story here that Greg's posted again is about the um, Office 365 revenue. So what do you got there, Greg? I said this might be follow-up ish. The last maybe mm. couple of weeks, you guys were talking about one password and then moving to a subscription service. And maybe there was a little discussion slash, uh, I don't know, consternation or something about more and more companies and applications moving to a subscription model to be sort of, you know, uh, recurring revenue, all of those kind of buzzwords. But then we right, get this right. subscription fatigue on the customer side where in the beginning it was like, sure, I'll give you a dollar a month. I'll give you $5 a month. I'll give you $10 a month. But then now it's like every company seemingly wants $10 a month for me. And it's like, okay, right. I cannot, well, you know, I don't want to give $10 to Dropbox and Spotify and Apple Music. And now one password and every piece of software I use is going to want some amount of money a month, which sometimes sounds a little silly because maybe I'd be willing to pay, you know, $25 for the app, which is like $2 a month. So what's the difference? But I just feel like the recurring revenue feels is getting to feel more burdensome to um, me as a consumer, I guess. So anyway, yeah. um, you guys were talking about one password. So that's why this was kind of half follow up, maybe. But the article is titled uh, Microsoft fourth quarter 2017. I don't have no idea what their fiscal year is if this is the fourth quarter. But anyway, it says Office 365 revenue surpasses traditional licenses. So there aren't really detailed numbers here because I wanted to give actual numbers. And I guess in their um, their call or whatever this is reporting from. Um, so anyway, it lists the revenue with this and that. Windows is still doing well and so on. But the uh, big point here is that Office 365 revenue, the subscription revenue, is greater than the traditional I'll just buy the software once kind of revenue. So for a company like Microsoft, where I don't know, the view has always been like, oh, they're protecting their business, Windows licenses, that's the core of the company. They need to keep getting that money in from PC vendors and Office selling to the enterprise. Oh, you know, that's like the core of their business too for productivity and whatnot. And so they've kind of turned the corner and said, no, we're, we're making more money off the subscriptions now than we are on 
and um, traditional uh, boxed, I'm making air quotes here, boxed software. Uh, so they've made the transition. The big company Microsoft has done it as well and have you know flipped it around to the other side, which is kind of interesting. I know Office 365 has more than just like Word and Excel. It's like a whole productivity suite. I think like Outlook Server or Active Direct, I don't know what it's called, but like the Outlook Server stuff and Mail for big enterprise companies is also wrapped up in the Office 365 subscription now, I think, where a company can get like Mail servers and Word and Excel licenses all for like as part of the subscription. Do you know anything about that, Tim? Well, you know, it, it's, it's interesting that you're bringing that up because it used to be that um, in when you were selling exchange licenses for um, mail servers, especially in corporations, mm-hmm. you would pay by the license, right? So it could add up pretty quickly, right? Yeah. Especially in, you know, like I think TD is at 100,000 people right now, right? So across the country in the United States. So for them to buy a license for everybody to have a copy of that, um, it may in, in the long run be cheaper for them to buy into the Office 365 yeah. uh, kind of flow. Um, and, and we talked about Adobe before. I mean, I was Adobe. I used to have Adobe Design or Web Package, whatever it was. I had a flavor of CS um, that I would use. And I would pay, you know, uh, I think originally the, the original license was like $2,400 Canadian. And then I would pay like 17 18 you know, every couple of years, $1,800 every couple of years to do an upgrade. You know, a Photoshop license was like $8.95. So paying $20 a month or $40 a month for, for Creative Suite, if you're if that's your main business. And I mean, if I was still doing the design and pre-press work and I had to use Illustrator and Photoshop and maybe InDesign every day, that would make sense for me to, to buy into that subscription. Mm. Um, and the same thing with Microsoft. I mean, the only thing about Microsoft that, that kind of irks me about it is that, you know, we're rocking uh, Office 2011, I think. Oh, wow. It, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, or that's, that's the version I have on my Mac, I think. 2016 was the last version for Mac that came out. So they're not, it's not like Adobe where Adobe constantly adds value to the to the software. Like even their iOS stuff is, if you have the iOS apps, there's a lot of tie-in with Adobe Creative Cloud where, you know, you can design something in, in Adobe Draw on the, on the or Illustrator, they call it, on the um, iPad and then send it up to your cloud and then mm. open it up in Photoshop and use the same color palette and blah, blah, blah. So like they have this sort of integrated experience that kind of like same same as we enjoy with iCloud syncing kind of thing. But, um, but, but again, coming back to my biggest point, my thing about this whole um, subscription thing is it's like, like you said before, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I look, I don't want to pay for 365 because I open a Word document occasionally, right? I mean, I don't <laughs> work in, I don't work in, uh, on my computer at home. I can't tell you the last time I opened a Word document. I had it because that's what my clients were sending me, right? Um, and then same with Photoshop. I mean, I, I use Photoshop once or once a week to do an, uh, an image for uh, the podcast. And yeah, it's gotten, it's gotten some, some quirks now that I'm working in, in Sierra with it. And, hmm. you know, it's, I'm, I'm using CS6 still, right? Wow. As a lot of people are. Yeah. And it still works. It still does its thing. But that said, I've also bought a copy of Acorn and, you know, and, and, um, I thought you were on one? board with the Affinity Designer and Affinity. Yeah. The, that there's line. a learning curve. There's a okay. learning curve, right? Okay. It's not, it's not like they've, um, like, you know, when InDesign tried to kill Quark, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, oh, we right? Did. Yeah. InDesign actually built in a set of Quark Express keys, key commands. So if you were coming from Quark, you could use the same Quark commands that you were used to in, as a way of weaning you off of Quark Express and then on to InDesign, right? Where Affinity Designer and Acorn and all these other kind of things, they do the same things as Photoshop, but not quite in the same way. And the commands are different, right? So there's a learning curve to kind of go away, uh, go, go into that. But if I, like, com- conversely, if I use Illustrator or Photoshop, while the commands are slightly different, they're very similar. Like the, the sort of logic 
logic behind how they work are very similar, kind of like Apple's, you know, whole human interface guidelines kind of makes every app kind of behave the same way, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm preparing for the day when, I, when, when CS6 doesn't work anymore for me, Photoshop CS6, but uh, by buying Acorn and, and, and exploring the other tools. But yeah, I do have it on my iPad. I mean, the Affinity um, Designer or Affinity, no, Affinity Photo on the I wasn't the sure. IPad. I know there's a photo app, but I didn't know what the name was. Affinity Photo? Yeah, okay. Yeah, Affinity, if, I have Affinity Designer on the Mac and I have Affinity Photo on the on the iPad. And I, to yeah. be honest with you, like, I just haven't had the time to sort of go through and kind of learn everything there is to know about it, right? So, mm. But I have been using, I use Photoshop. There's a Photoshop Express mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a Photoshop-ish thing, I forget what it's called, that I use on my phone occasionally. But like, again, like coming back, I was talking to Tammy about this earlier, that I still use a lot of the Apple native stuff. And now that they've added a lot of, um, you know, this filtering with all that core image stuff inside of the photo app, right? And you can annotate things in the photo app and you can mark it up and whatever. I, I now use the photo app on my phone instead of using the Photoshop, the, pho- the Adobe apps, right, on my phone mm-hmm. to, you know, massage images before I upload them to Instagram, of course, right? Uh, of course. <laughs> Where else would you upload them? Oh, there's, uh, there's that book place and, you know. I don't know what you're talking about, but. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Book. Um, so, I mean, so coming back to, I mean, the argument against, against uh, and, and I was just listening to release notes this week they they're they're catching up with all the story and, and the consternation about the um, from the security companies about about one password going to the cloud and the subscription based thing and and their their point was you know and we've all talked about this for the last two and a half years or three years that we do in this podcast is that you know software is now coming back up into where it used to be like you used to when you had palm pilot or whatever or blackberry you would pay forty dollars for a piece of software not you know 299 right and now um, the more sophisticated softwares are moving back into that sort of range, whether they're charging, you know, outright that much money for uh, an app on iOS or they're doing it through subscriptions because the subscription model for developer you know, creates that recurring revenue that keeps them going and keeps them able to build on on what they're doing, right? So, so I mean, you know, um, Microsoft, of course, you know, uh, unlike uh, the average indie developer, doesn't need that kind of revenue, but it's pointing to where the business of app development is is going to have to go for it to survive, right? What do you think, Mark? Well, I use 365 uh, for Microsoft, um, and it has some good advantages. It's, it's uh, you know, I moved to it from, I think, the last version that I bought outright was Office 08, something like that. Wow. So it's, def- <laughs> so it's definitely a step up there, but, you know, I don't use it that often, so so whether it's worth it financially, I don't know, it's tough to say. Uh, I don't know what... What does it cost you for the subscription? I don't remember, uh, but I think it was, you know, on the order of between 100 and 150 bucks for a year. So do you pay annually like that. Kind of thing, or? It's an annual thing, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, those numbers could be off by 20%. I don't, I don't remember exactly. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what I would replace it with. I don't particularly like the, the, the offerings from Google, let's say. Um, yes, they're great for collaboration, uh, but the tools in general are not really that good, in my opinion. Uh, I think the Microsoft tools are actually much better, believe it or not. Uh, and I don't really use the Apple offerings either because I don't think they're that great either. I hate to say it. Um, you know, you ever try to do a real a real spreadsheet in numbers? It's eh, you know, so so I don't really see that there's an option if you have to do any kind of real business work. 
So I do it. So I use it. Um, but I, I but I agree with you. Yeah, that it's yeah, it's a sign of the the, the changing times in, in software. Um, you know, there's only so much, so long people will put up with the race to the bottom, and we as developers kind of you know shot ourselves in the foot with iOS and the race to the bottom there. So um, it was inevitable that it was going to change and, and come back at some point. Interesting. Just a real time follow up. Um, and this is Canadian dollars, but if you're buying uh, Office 365 for home, it's ninety nine dollars Canadian a year or ten dollars a month. Um, so that's like a 20% savings. Mm-hmm. And then if you're buying a personal copy, $69 or $7 a month. And the business side, they don't let you buy it. Uh, they don't. There's no annual price, but it's uh, either $10, $10.50 a month or $15 a month in that sort of range for the premium. I guess uh, that gives you, uh, you know, Outlook, Word, Excel, PowerPoint, mm. OneNote. OneNote, is, a lot of people subscribe, uh, uh, say is good. I've heard good things uh, about that too. Yeah, yeah. And the access, access database. And then, of course, you've got services like Exchange, OneDrive, SharePoint, Skype for Business, and Yammer. That's with uh, the $15 a month um, Canadian, which is probably like $0.25 cents American, right? Wow, Access <laughs> Database. Is that still around? Amazing. Yeah, yeah, I know. Wow. I, know. <laughs> I got my, uh, almost got my programming career start with Access, so that's amazing. Really? Wow. It's still around. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That and Fortran. So I'm looking at the pricing, yeah. looking at the pricing now. It's, it's $99.99 for a year for the home version and $69.99 for the personal version. Really? It's cheaper in Canada. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Because wow. it's in Canadian dollars. Is the same number ninety nine. What's, what's yeah, the business yeah. business cost there, Mark? Uh, business is well, it looks like there's no yearly, um, but with the yearly commitment, it's eight dollars and twenty five cents per month per user for the regular business, and twelve fifty per month for the business premium. Oh, I see. There's a pull down here, right? Right. Huh. And there's actually something else called business essentials. That's five dollars per month. Oh, for the startups, it sounds like. I guess so. The word essentials that always makes you know <laughs> that always yeah. means the cheaper version. So yeah, 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 and. Uh, uh, let's see. In the version I have, let me see what tools it comes with. Hold on one second here. Obviously, the, the big three, Windows, uh, not Windows, uh, Word, PowerPoint, Excel. Uh, but it also has OneNote, Outlook, Silverlight. Oh, I didn't know that was still around, too. Yeah, yeah. Looks like that's that's it for what I've got installed. Now, you can use that on your iPad, too, though, because the same subscription, right? I think so, yeah. I don't, but I think you can. Yeah, because a friend of, friend of mine that was was showing me OneNote the other day. He's using. He had an uh, iPad Pro with an Apple Pencil. And he was uh, using OneNote. I asked him what app that was, and he was—he explained to me he was—he was writing cursively, wasn't you know just taking notes and drawing pictures at a at a meetup. Mm-hmm. So kind of handy. Mm-hmm. One other thing from this that I just wanted to point out was the split in revenue. So the Microsoft apparently reports reports in three segments: productivity, business stuff, which is like Office Exchange, all that stuff, uh, cloud, and then uh, what they call more personal computing, which is like Windows hardware and Xbox and their other software search and advertising kind of business, like as Bing is in there, and hmm. they're um, not not exactly, but almost it's like a third, a third, and a third is kind of how it's split, which is kind of interesting. So I, I would say they have a very seems to have a very maybe they rigged it so that you know the divisions happen to be like that because I don't know why you put like Windows and Xbox together, but it, it, the way they report it seems very balanced. So that means that their cloud business is almost as big as their productivity, which is again Office, Exchange, SharePoint, that stuff. And so they seem to have a good split between there. I think they're bigger in cloud is than I thought is kind of my conclusion from there. But then. Well, there's a yeah, very, Azure is actually pretty big. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's like I like I kind of when I think about it, I'm like, yes, of course they're big. But when I see the number, I'm like, oh wow, that's like I guess I'm still stuck in the '90s or whatever, where it's like Windows was like you know 95 percent of the revenue or whatever. And now to see that the category that Windows is in, not even just Windows, but the category that Windows is in, is only a little bit more than cloud revenue, is just like amazing to me. Because yeah, I just haven't kept up with it. But I would just draw the contrast to uh, our other favorite company, Apple, where it's 
it's like it is very much more lopsided from like iPhone hardware. It's like whatever. I don't even know what it is. 80% or I'm just making up numbers here. But a very, very large chunk and it's all about hardware and Apple's sort of cloud business. I know iCloud subscription revenue is probably like definitely not a third of the company revenue is kind of what I'm... It's the but it's growing. growing. We, we talked about that a few... I know. It, it is growing. Yeah. So so I'll give them that. But I don't... You know, they don't sell the same kind of cloud services that Microsoft does. I don't think Apple will... Well, maybe they will. But I would guess they would not hit like a third of revenue. Like, would that equal their hardware business? That just seems, you know, almost unbelievable. But I probably would have said the same thing about Microsoft 20 years ago. So who knows? But Microsoft has a much more balanced uh, business than I thought. It was kind of my conclusion. My final conclusion out of all of this. Yeah. Apple, Apple will never have the type of revenue that that window or uh, Microsoft rather or, or Google or, or Amazon have from cloud because they don't have a full solution right now. They don't have any kind of hosting, mm-hmm. virtual hosting. So that's where most of the money is, right? Uh, you know, the big companies host their entire web presence on these services and, and, mm-hmm. and it's not it's not cheap. Right. So, without, so without that, yeah, there's no way Apple will have that kind of revenue. Mm. It's not clear they want it at this point, actually. Oh, exactly, yeah. yeah. Here we grow. Okay. Um, oh, we're pushing the long, wrong link. All right, so I guess that uh, brings us to the Picorama that we have here. Wow, it's that time already. Um, yeah, so let's look at some picks here. So, Mark, do you have a pick for us today? Uh, I do have a pick. Uh, it's another in the series of machine learning uh, <laughs> picks. Uh, this one is written by a friend of Tim and Greg's, actually, I believe, uh, named uh, Matthias Olman, something like that. Am I yeah, pronouncing yeah. that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Close enough. <laughs> yeah. So the title is Pros and Cons of iOS Machine Learning APIs. So it's kind of interesting. So we've been talking a lot about all these different machine learning uh, APIs that have come out in the in the recent past, like Core ML, and, and of course, Metal has been around for a while, and there's things like TensorFlow and other other things like that. So in this article, Matthias uh, kind of goes through systematically uh, several of them, and in, in several areas, like, are they good with the cloud? Are they good for, uh, you know, high performance on your device, or, or the, the, you know, the, the, the use of the GPU, and things like that, and compares uh, compares the different, different APIs. And, you know, he doesn't have any kind of conclusion that says one is the best of all of them or anything like that. It's not that kind of article, but but if, if you're interested in, you know, why would you use Metal in some application? Why would you use uh, TensorFlow in some application? Why would you use Core ML? Well, this may give you some guidance on what, what are some of the advantages uh, to each of them and what are some of the disadvantages. Right. You know, one thing about the cloud services like TensorFlow and Cafe and things like that, like usually when you could use the cloud services, um, there's a cost to the developer because you have to pay for for using it, I mean, one thing we, we one correction that we that I noticed reading this article is that uh, we had said a couple of weeks ago that you could use TensorFlow with Core ML, and um, according to Matthias here, we can't. Um, you can you can still use TensorFlow in your apps, but uh, I don't. I think we were mistaken uh, in terms of we mm, thought that we. Where does he say that? Um, in the in the third party APIs part, right? So so my uh, understanding is that you can use TensorFlow with Core ML, but you have to go through the conversion process. Uh, using right. the the tools that Apple provides, it doesn't work out of the box. Right, but but you certainly can convert your models over and use them there. Okay, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought I'd read somewhere that you could that was it was different or somehow. Um, MTJC regrets the confusion. Yeah, we do. And then there was <laughs> and he talks about two different versions of using Metal, um, it, one low level and one graph API. I think we talked about that one before, right? Performance shaders. Um, so it's interesting if you're looking if you're kind of debating what what direction to go in. I mean, I think the plug and play aspect of Core ML makes it attractive to the average developer, right? Um, but if you want to roll your own, it's, uh, you know, you got to roll your sleeves up and get, get ready to get dirty. So do some math and stuff. Nah. Yeah, I know. Tammy's shaking her head. <laughs> 
So it's all good. Cool. All right. Tim, do you have a pick? Yeah. So uh, one here is a real quick one. And, and it was like an in- insta buy for me. It's like, you know, hurry up and take my money. Um, this uh, Power Pigs build. It's a gentleman. I'm not sure where he's from, but he um, has assembled these Lego kits. And I think they're Lego uh, where you can build, you know, little models of retro uh, experiences. So it looks like he's got like a food thing where you can build hamburgers and he's got a whole series of cameras that you can build, but, and, and some bonsai. But what attracted me was the technology link where uh, if you had a Commodore 64, you can build a little Lego model of a Commodore 64, or if you had an old IBM PC with the big honk and green screen uh, CRT and the big, you know, five and a quarter floppies, or the Nintendo, uh, the original Nintendo um, gaming systems, that kind of stuff. But what the InstaBuy for me was, he's actually put together a Macintosh, um, basically like, he's called it the My First Computer Byte Edition 3, version 3, and it, it looks like an original 128k or 512k mac and um the back comes off just like the old macs do and it's even got the a little model of the um the video board as well as the logic board across the bottom so you can sort of take apart put it together and take it apart and put it together and uh, it's got a little uh, model of a um crt screen that's with the word hello spelled spelt out in script the same way that when they first rolled the apple computer out or the macintosh computer out um you can see that there so that's quite a interesting thing you know $78 US for the little model kit, but hey, to me, it was worth it. <laughs> that is totally um, a Commodore 64, but I like how they can't call it that, so they call it the My First Computer, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's even, there's, there's an Apple-ish, uh, like an Apple II, uh, is it actually, there's there are Apple IIs in here, Apple II GS, Apple IIEs. Are there? I just, I mean, the Similar. Commodore 64 is the first one, so, oh, okay, I see the mini console. Yeah, if you go to the, if you go to page two, yeah. yeah. It yeah. also looks like the second generation of the Atari computers from the Right. So right. maybe he's being intentionally vague. It could be anyone's first computer. Well, I'm yeah. sure like they, they don't have the rights to it, so he can't actually say what this is. But uh, <laughs> right. yeah, that right. is the right. Apple with the uh, with the built-in monitor. What was like the 2GS or whatever? I forget what the monitor, CE or something like yeah. that? I forget yeah, now. Yeah, 2GS. No, I definitely, recommend, I definitely recognize the Commodore 64 with the little rainbow-ish thing and the power light. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and if you're into cameras or gaming, yeah, the gaming systems, you've, got, you've even got retro TVs with a sort of a Pac-Man kind of looking um, graphic on the monitor. So mm, I like the one with the bars. That one's pretty, or the static one is pretty good too. <laughs> it comes in that uh, that wooden panel thing that televisions used to come yeah. like when televisions used to be like a piece of furniture back in those days. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. No, we had those. Uh, it was like looked like a hutch, like a big wide thing with the, with the TV built into the front of it. And yeah, yeah like you had, could close the cabinet oh, when yeah. you were done. Yeah, right? there's a, there was a door it to it. Like yeah. like anyone would ever close the door in front of a TV. Yeah, I never right? quite understood that, but yeah. it looked nice when you closed it. I remember my cousin. Yeah. My aunt and uncle had one of those, and at the top, if you pushed it down, it would kind of pop out of the top, and it was an eight-track player. I remember they had one of those. Nice, so, nice. You, know, you get your audio and your video. Yeah, yeah. You could li- lift the lid up on on the one side where the TV wasn't, and usually there was like a turntable where you could play yeah. your high fives. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. They had stereo yeah. speakers on the front of it, right? So yeah, it's like why not take advantage of it? Like I said, you can do audio and video. So, but yes, they yeah. had an eight-track, and and the whole thing was powered by a bunch of hamsters and a wheel. That's how. Yeah, that's how. Oh, I just I just. 
remember the old uh, the 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 thing would go on the fritz, and the guy would come with the you know the the workman's crack at the back of his pants, and uh, and he would go in there and, and pull out all of the vacuum tubes, and oh, you got to get this tube replaced, and it was like you know, <laughs> I don't remember that, but I remember my yeah, dad. Remember my dad was asking me like, do you you know back in the days when they had TVs and they had to like replace? I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you know, they had to replace the thing. I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. And then you know, there's like a bit of a language barrier, but he was like, it's like the big tube with no air and i was like oh right. a vacuum tube and he's like oh that's what they're called vacuum tubes and so he was trying to tell right. me the story and i had no idea what he was talking about until he called them tubes with no air so you know that's yeah, pretty funny but you know when we were kids now uh, think about this right we had three kids in our family so or four kids uh, three sisters and myself and we, we would regret we would you know try not to watch tv with my dad because invariably he would make one of us go up and you know the monty python skit where the where they get the indian guy and they change in the channel right we literally would have to go up there and he would like signal to us to turn the channel on the dial <laughs> yeah, and so you'd be the schmuck standing up there by the tv with the turning the dial until and he would just wrote circle his finger just to change channels right so yeah 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 i remember so when we, we got were, a remote control it was like magnetic and it stuck to the there was a little like panel in the tv like a recess right, yeah. in the tv where you could put the remote in like to store it yeah oh, yeah, yeah those are the days so a friend of mine when he first moved out he had one of those it, it wasn't i don't know if it was infrared or something like that but it was like had this mechanical kachunk kind of button yeah, yeah. yeah. one My was for turning it on was. and one was for changing the channel and yeah. and uh i think the, the the turning it on didn't work but the changing the channel and it was literally like an old star trek you know the first generation star trek uh phaser kind of like yeah they were know, they were heavy duty switches switch. like they weren't playing around yeah. now that's those little oh they were they were probably things, creating but... like you know we're probably sending neutrons across the room <laughs> or something right you know <laughs> <laughs> oh, good times good times yeah. we should call this the, yeah. the classic podcast or something like that reminisce about old technology <laughs> we do a whole yeah. series on the commodore series of computers yeah mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah we were trying to reminisce it. we remember uh basic but we're gotten too old to remember it now except for mark uh, I, I have it in my uh i did a talk and i had basic in there recently so actually speaking of talks that was a great segue greg because my second pick happens to be a talk <laughs> that you did totally unintentional <laughs> i did not uh, right yeah so they can tell me about this this skill this is this was this the talk in san francisco um no this, this was is uh you didn't even put the it's five unbelievable secrets of reactive programming the experts don't want you to know this is from playgrounds conference in australia so it's from back in uh right. february yeah right so it's uh, they have to have the link here as five secrets of reactive programming they didn't, they didn't put your i'll, I'll make yeah. sure i get the correct title in uh, the thing please oh, do five unbelievable yeah secrets of reactive oh, right. programming yeah, the they've experts. got it in italics here in the in the transcript right so yeah, yeah. um the slug would yeah, have been too so long I, really so enjoy- I think that you they were hitting url limits so they couldn't put the full title in sure yeah. and, and i was it was really good for me because I watched this on Tuesday. Tuesdays we have a, a sort of a forum with our iOS developers, and and the topic of the day was was sequences, right? And uh-huh. uh, thankfully, I had watched your your this talk on the. Um, it had nothing to do with the talk, but I, I watched this on the streetcar on the way to the office, and your explanation of uh, of what, what a sequence is, and you know how it kind of goes. It only has a next function, and you have to if you want to start over, you have to go back to the beginning of the sequence and work your way through it. Um, you know, and they can be they can run forever or they can have an ending um and sort of the methods of how it really helped with explaining to the guys what the se- what the sequence were but anyway so it's it's a a talk you know greg goes through five sort of secrets or what he calls secrets about uh things that you need to know about Re- reactive swift and he uses the uh, uh, what did you call it knots and knots and crosses knots and crosses knots and crosses which no, those of us in yeah those of us in the northern hemisphere call it tic tac toe no i think in the um, apparently in the uk they call it knots and 
crosses, and I looked it up, and okay, somebody, right. some website somewhere said that in Australia, they also call it knots and crosses. That's why I called it that. But then people there told oh, me that yes. they probably say tic-tac-toe more maybe these days because they're all Americanized, just like uh, we are in Canada. Right. So anyway, yeah, knots and crosses. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so Greg uses that as the analogy to go through and explain how Reactive Swift is uh, is used to build uh, a reactive game, if you will, right? Um, just a side note here. I, I noticed in a toy store the other day, when we were kids, did you ever play Snakes and Ladders? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so now they call and Ladders. It, yeah. Well, now they call it, it... So is that always been called Shoots and Ladders? Because yeah. I thought that was also a British versus a North American thing. And I, I feel like in well, see, North I, America, it was Snakes and Ladders. Like I remember Snakes and, and Ladders as a kid, too. But I remember hearing, like, overseas, right. it was Shoots and Ladders. The snakes were scary and they didn't no, want to No, no, because I, I came from England where we played shoot, uh, Snakes and Ladders. So, oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Sorry, Mark, oh, you said it was Shoots. It was Shoots. It was Shoots when I was a kid. So maybe yeah. in the Commonwealth, we were okay and we called it Snakes, but Americans wanted to protect, protect their kids and call it Shoots. Well, it's like it the Sorcerer's Stone versus the Philosopher's Stone, Exactly, because right? Sorcerer, that's evil. Or Philosopher, yes. we don't know what that is. We got to call yes, it like Sorcerer. Some guy so, Nietzsche or something like that who doesn't, who doesn't even want to bother arguing about this because it doesn't mean anything anyway, right? Yeah. Um, so, so why don't you? What, what's your what's your take on on your own talk there, Greg? What do you think? What do you think your talk was about? I want to do a little real time follow up first. Snakes and Ladders sure. is an ancient Indian board game. Believe it or not, says Wikipedia. Right, I have no idea. Um, but they changed it to Milton Bradley changed it to Shoots and Ladders. It says for different morality lessons, which is um, I'd have to read Ooh. the rest of this page. But anyway, it does. I was hoping to say like in Britain it would be this, and the rest of the world it would be that. But it's a very long article. But it's a uh, ancient Indian. Who would have thought? Well, it, it, you know, that may tie in with, with, you know, my dad, who was an ancient Indian, too, right? So. <laughs> don't talk about Mr. Mitra like that. I don't like that. <laughs> yes. Mr. Mitra Esquire. Yes. Um, but yeah, but so we, we were, I mean, I remember playing that with my with my dad when I was a kid. So there you go. Okay. So That and chess, which apparently is another ancient game from way over there somewhere. Yes. True. Do you want to Google that one? Uh, chess? I feel like <laughs> I think that comes over. from India, too, actually. Really? Really? Mm-hmm. That is definitely, uh, I was going to say Western, but I, I mean, like, not Chinese. Some people say it's like an ancient Chinese game, but yeah, it does say originated in India sometime before the seventh century. Hmm. Yeah, I, I vaguely remember seeing like uh, knights being elephants, right? So. Ah, somewhere, in my mem- somewhere lodged in my memory that just came back to me. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. So if you're interested in snakes and ladders or chess or reactive swift, you know, uh, <laughs> check out Greg's talk on. There's a tr- full transcript here, which is kind of cool. This is, I guess, the skilled site does this, right? Um, yeah. So if you how don't how accurate Greg's is it? Just happy. skimming. I, I I forget. I don't think I skimmed through it. But is it? Did you read the transcript or you watched the talk? I haven't read the transcript. Okay. I was too busy watching the video on the on the streetcar this morning. Okay. But well, yeah, that's good. I think most people probably will watch the video. So I'm always just suspicious of the transcript scripts because you know there's like technical language and you never know but uh right, i think right, i skimmed yeah. through and it looked okay but there were some things but i can't go in and fix them like i could last time so yeah. well i could highlight it and have it read it to me and then see if it sounds <laughs> the same as you reading it to me yeah if only i had a voice setting in uh on the mac dictation or whatever but now that you say that though when i was watching it i i, I don't know how what i did but the subtitles were showing up i think because they had they do the thing where they have the slide on one side and you talking the talking head on the other side yeah and they had the subtitles and i noticed that you know like some of the ums and uh and, and the sort of uh, uh, vocal, um, I don't know, what it's called, I don't know if it's called vocal fry, but the, the vocalization that, not vocal wasn't fry. transcribed. <laughs> it wasn't transcribed. Yeah, it wasn't okay. Fry. No, but <laughs> we'll yeah, talk about, so, we'll so, argue about so, vocal fry later. Yeah. Okay. Let's put it this way: the, the sentences, yes, sentences were, were done correctly yes. um, in the in the way that they kind of transcribed it. But you're you know? saying I said um and ah uh, during the talk, and that did not get transcribed. You did, yeah. I mean, yeah. but they they didn't they didn't they didn't literally put every you know guttural inference. <laughs> 
you know, came out of your face or whatever. <laughs> this is getting worse. Trying to find worse. an elegant yeah. way to say that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's move on. <laughs> I think is that is that if yeah I'm done. I think I'm done with the picks. Right. So okay. So on to you, Greg. How many? I have picks? one pick which has two sub picks. So we'll call them pick one and then pick sub pick one A subsection A and sub pick one subsection B. So the okay. pick is an app called Free Time, which is a GitHub open source project manager. So it's think of it as like a GitHub app for iOS. Uh, it's written by friend, not friend of the show, but friend of mine, Ryan Nystrom, yeah, who also works at Instagram. He's friend of the show. He's friend of the know. show. I friend. have no idea who the friends of the show oh. are. So um, fellow Instagram, okay, fellow Instagram employee, Ryan Nystrom wrote this in his free time. And because uh, he has a couple of open source GitHub uh-huh. projects and he was like, I want to manage them on the phone. But, you know, the GitHub website on mobile is not that great. So he wrote this app based on the API. Um, yeah, to manage your open source projects. And the app itself is open source. So my main pick nice. is the app. If you look after GitHub apps, then you can check. It's a free app, so you can go check it out. And so pick one subsection A is the source code for this app, which is on GitHub, um, github.com slash rnystrom slash free time. And then you can see the source for this app. It's all written in Swift. So that's exciting. You can see some well, Ryan's a very smart guy. So you can see some well-written Swift source code and see how an application like this is made. Um, so there's that. And then pick number one subsection B is everybody's favorite. One of the third-party libraries that he uses. So he's also very careful about using too many third-party libraries. I think he does a pretty good job of that. But one he uses in particular, which I kind of liked, is from Slack, everybody's favorite chat system, application, whatever you want to call it. So they have a library called Slack Text View Controller. And if you go to their GitHub page, which will be in the show notes, then you can see it's a... Um, if you've used Slack on mobile, then you've probably seen this before. So it's a text view, but it grows, which is a common request that people want. So you can find all kinds of growing text views out there on the web. Uh, but you know, this is nice. It's from Slack. It's Slack is a very heavily used app. So I would say it's probably very well tested and all of that. Um, so you can just use it for that, but it also does autocomplete. So if you've, again, used Slack, and if you type the at sign, then you'll get this autocomplete of suggestions of people that you might want to at mention. And as you keep typing, like I do at T-I-M, then it will find all of the Tims that I know. Um, so it's got this really nice autocomplete API built into it too. And then again, if you use Slack, you know, if you do the colon, you can start typing an emoji. There's hashtags, slash commands. So you can define certain characters as these triggers. You can say whenever anybody types an exclamation mark, then that is a trigger for a whatever in my application. And then you can offer autocomplete suggestions. Uh, so it's got a whole bunch of features. That one's maybe one of my favorites, but it's got um, markdown formatting. You can, it has a little indicator like, you know, Mark is also typing dot, 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 like because they're a chat app. So they have that kind of feature. Nice. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's mm-hmm. a really nice, even if you don't use it yourself, again, one of my favorite things to do is just read source code and see how they built all this stuff. And it's open source, obviously. So you can go in and check out how they built this text view that has a whole bunch of other features that are very interesting as well to see how they did it. Um, so yeah, so if you download uh, Ryan's app free time, then it does use this for, I think, at mentions. Because if you're commenting on a GitHub project and you do at, you can like mention other people in the project. I think that's what it does. And so it uses this um, Slack text view controller. So check that out. Let's pick one subsection B. And that is it. I only have a single pick for the day. Cool. Yeah. So we've uh, for listeners of the show will know that we've mentioned Ryan Nystrom on a number of occasions because he was behind the uh, Instagram was that Instagram uh, view controller thing that you guys put out. IG um, list kit. Maybe you're thinking. IG of. list kit. Yeah, yes. that's the one. Yeah, that's yes. what I'm thinking of. It, which does their sort of their, um, I guess their news feed or home view kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And Ryan was the one who, um, I think a couple of years ago at the first RW DevCon did the piece on giving back to the community, which basically said, you know, you may think that you're not uh, all that as far as a developer goes, but even if you teach one person one thing, you've given back to the community. So that's right. Yeah. We should go 
I'll dig up that talk URL and put that in the notes. That was a very good one. I think it was on, yeah, contributing, yeah, giving yeah, back so. was the was the theme, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think it was a pick of of probably mine back in the day. But yeah, we were talking. I think we were talking about you know why we do what we do, kind of thing, right? So this podcast and all that kind of stuff, and why we help each other out. Hmm. And that's why. There's a good uh, little plug for your upcoming 360 iDev talk as well, which is about well, actually, yeah, no, you know, just it's about exactly exactly that. It's about ch- about becoming a better developer by by vocalizing or talking to going through the whole process of communicating about code um you know uh, Jaime and I both are, are giving the talk and we both uh, secretly have talked about the fact that you know being on the podcast helps us you know be better communicators when we get back to work and you know people are wondering where we get all these fabulous ideas from and it's from all the research we do on the podcast and listening to you guys explain stuff to us right so explaining stuff good. yeah all right I found the link Lucy so. you got some explaining to do yes I see that <laughs> the talk contributing by Ryan Nystrom from the first RW DevCon inspiration talk that will be in the right. show notes as well if you want to check that out. Sure. Yep. Uh, I was I was also going to bring up that uh, this app free time the GitHub one also uses IG List Kit of course. Um, so if oh, you are oh, curious cool. about IG List Kit and you want nice. to know what it does, you can well aside from using Instagram, you can also check out this app and look at the source code to see how the you know the main one of the main contributors to IG List Kit uses IG right. List Kit in his own apps. So again, reading source code, good thing. One question I have about uh, I haven't looked at these projects yet, but does he do any unit testing in them? Uh, IG List Kit I know is definitely tested very very heavily i think mm-hmm. it all has almost 100 mm-hmm. percent test coverage not that you should chase the numbers but it is very well covered by tests this free time app itself i don't know if the app is tested there is a test target i'm just browsing very quickly uh there are some tests yeah he's usually pretty good about that i was gonna say i like to look at how people write tests because because that's always a challenge is what do you test and how do you test it right so yeah so he does have uh one two three four five six test classes in here so uh, and one of them was updated oh. 23 minutes ago so he's working on them as we speak. Wow. So I don't think the app is 100% covered, but he's, it looks like he's got the important stuff like markdown parsing and all important dealing with emoji, making sure that works. So yeah, he's got some tests in here. Oh, nice. Cool. All right. Well, I guess that's it for the week. So hey, uh, Greg, if people want to get a hold of you, where would they look? They should look on Twitter. I am Greg Heo, G-R-E-G-H-E-O. All right. And Mark, if people want to find, get in touch with you. Mark R at smapsoft.com. And as I said at the top of the show, I am Timitra. I am T-I-M-M-I-T-R-A on the Twitter machine. That's the best way to get a hold of me. And we'll see you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Hey, if you want to find out more about the show, you can visit the More Than Just Code website at mtjc.fm. There you can find a summary and show notes for each episode. We list links to the items that we talk about on the show, as well as links to the apps on the App Store. If you like the podcast, you can leave a comment on the website, or you can write a review on iTunes. All of these things help others find out about the show, and we really appreciate your help with spreading the word. We are also on Twitter and Facebook. Once again, the podcast's Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. Really? You can also support the show by pledging any amount on patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.
I'm loving all the Apollo 11 uh, retweets. Have you seen all those? I have no idea what you're talking about. So, well, I think it's the 48th anniversary of the alleged landing on the moon. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> Tammy's not say. here. He don't have to say that. <laughs> yeah. So 48 years ago this week, um, they would have been just returning back from... Uh, actually, no, they would be in They would be in the three-week... Um, uh, what do you call it? Quarantine. quarantine. I was yeah, going to say decont- little... decontamination. I was going to say, but quarantine. Is yeah, I, I couldn't understand that. I was like... I probably, like 11 years old. I couldn't understand why these guys had to go into that thing for like three weeks. Like, what could they possibly bring back from the giant ashtray that is the moon? You never know. There's bacteria everywhere on all kinds of surfaces. That's true. I I, I suppose so. I suppose so, so. yeah. Anyway, so, um, yeah, so all week, um, you know, Buzz Aldrin and this this one um, uh, group I've been following, uh, all kinds of people have been retweeting, you know, retweeting about it. And and, uh, Steve Heyman had sort of said that he was like in a hotel room. So he went and he saw the launch in Florida with his, his dad, right? Him and his brother and um they were in a hotel room and he was he tweeted about you know he remembered being in the hotel room watching the thing on a crappy black and white tv and i i did too because that's what we did we were actually in i think we were in pittsburgh pennsylvania at the time at a holiday inn and and uh so i tweeted back i'll always remember that that hotel room <laughs> yeah anyway so like all during the week so as things were happening somebody at nasa had been tweeting what was happening at that moment in time 48 years ago mm, i see yeah yeah so it's kind of interesting to follow, sort of follow along the thing and I and somebody else tweeted and I remember doing this too when I was a kid looking up the moon going you know there's there's three guys up there right now you know two on the surface and one floating around right mm-hmm. I think they said um was it some I think it was one of those ask uh xkcd articles mm-hmm. and he had that or whatever it's called ask wire so and it was anyway it was like when who or when was like the most isolated human in history and they oh, were like, the guy yeah you know and they were like oh well there's this Pacific island and someone might have been shipwrecked and you know it's like 2,000 kilometers from the nearest point of land, right. so it could be that person. Or yeah. they did say yeah. that one guy in the orbiter, when he was on the far side of the moon, because of the distance of the moon, that he call, he may yeah. have been the most isolated human. Like if you if you're considering like in the universe kind of thing, like not just on, yeah. on the planet, but uh, it, might, it might be him. So that was the interesting. Well, actually, here I'll I send heard. you this. I'll send you this tweet uh, if I can get the link to the tweet. How do I do that here? I think there's a quote from him, and he said that. Um, there's know, there's a picture. Like, hmm. I'm gonna I'm gonna send you this picture here let me just copy this link here i'm just it's two steps to copy something into it in tweet deck it doesn't make any sense but it's a picture of that mike collins took of the lunar module as it's returning to him Mm -hmm. with the moon in the background and the earth in the far background so he's the only person in human existence at that point in time not in this photograph well that we know of but yes allegedly allegedly Uh, i think there's a good quote by him as well where he said like um some inspiring quote i think where he said like you know people like you know weren't you lonely up there and he said no on the contrary you know i felt all of i'm i'm I sound like i'm belittling it which i'm not but you know he's something like you know i felt all of humanity was watching us and you know felt a sense of peace when i was there on myself by myself and it was just a nice moment of quiet but you know mm-hmm. kind of a nice quote I, I, I think it was in the xkcd thing but yeah he is the only anyway, so have, have a look at alive. that picture I, yeah, have a look at it. that picture i just sent you yeah, i see it's it. cool one one from the books well i don't know half of the earth is kind of occluded there so you know we don't really well know in the frame happen. in the frame if you th- if you think about it <laughs> like you know yeah yeah <laughs> there was no instagram for him to put that up at that point in time, it is a square know, photo so. <laughs> my eyes don't deceive me that looks like a square photo too so well, it's it would have been perfect it's a, it, well it was a hasselblad like this yeah. is the thing there was there was only yeah in the like first mission it's like two-thirds in the first mission yeah. there's only two there was only two hasselblads i was reading the other day i didn't know this i did not know this i learned this this week 48 years later that only neil armstrong had a camera on his chest and only mike and they had one in, in the in the, the command module 
Angel, right? That's why there are no pictures of Neil Armstrong on the moon other than the ones taken from the, the lander, right? So Buzz, Al- Buzz Aldrin. Some, yeah, I had heard some conspiracy theory that Buzz Aldrin was like, ang- this is probably why well, I think it's not true. He was like angry that yeah. he didn't get to be the first one. And so he made sure that all the photos of <laughs> Neil Armstrong were like no, flurry or something like that. No, I don't no, know. That, that no. sounds kind of silly to me, but I had read something. Well, like it's that, funny. Too. It's funny. There's a, there's a, if you know anything about Photoshop, and I think you do, right? You've, you've worked with Photoshop for a number of years, right? A little bit. Yeah. And you know, you know, can't, you know, apertures and, and focal lengths and all that kind of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. You're familiar with the concept? Yeah. So they, they had like, a, I think it was like a 50 millimeter camera lens on this thing and they couldn't change lenses. Like they couldn't do wide angle and all that kind of stuff, right? And if you look at the, the, all of the pictures that were taken on by NASA or have been published to a website and you can actually go and look at them and they're all numbered like it'll say A11, you know, 001, meaning the roll and then the, the exposure, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. 24 or whatever, right? So however, however many there were on the rolls. And there's one photo, there's one, uh, photograph of the lunar uh, module, lunar lander on the moon. And you can see, you can see the feet, you can see the whole thing up and you can see Buzz Aldrin coming out the door of the lander and there's like there's even like the photoshop lens flare and it's literally the photoshop lens flare i'm not saying like they they mess with it, it actually is that right mm-hmm. and if you if you read and you, a lot of conspiracy theorists have said that this photoshop this, this picture is faked it's totally photoshopped the shadows are all well yeah of course because it was made up of a composite of shots from that role and the name of the image that's originally saved by nasa is like a11 shot 84 to 96 meaning it was made made up with photos from that that range on that role or right. Those roles. Yeah. So, you know, they, and, and if you follow the actual history of the photograph, when, when NASA posted it, they said, oh, and thanks to Joe in the, in the, you know, the science department who uses handy Photoshop skills to put this image together, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like the conspiracy theorists are saying, you know, it was, a, it was faked because this Photoshop image was faked. Yeah. And yet NASA fully admits it was a Photoshopped image. But right? like they, stitched together, not that kind, yeah. not the other kind of Photoshop. Uh, stitched together with Photoshop. It was actually, it was actually. Yeah. done yeah in, uh, that's in, what i mean like the they, they yeah, use photoshop the software to stitch it together but when you yes. use the verb photoshop that means something else which is probably not yeah no no yeah right? well so but it, but actually in 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 yeah photoshop not in the negative sense but photoshopped in the fact that it was actually put together with photoshop yeah. right but i mean I, I think that's the fault of nasa for using that word because they should know well i don't it. i don't know i don't know necessarily if they use that word okay. i'm using that word okay. but don't throw don't throw them under the bus just i'll yet, throw them right? under the bus if i have to but yeah. all right but i'm but i'm saying if you if you look for that faked shot of of the lunar lunar module like if you look at it it's like part of part of the sh- the shot was done as the the module was was part of it was taken by Mike Collins and part of it was taken by you know Neil Armstrong and you know it's it is a messed up shot when you look at it but it's it's actually a very good photoshop job considering the year in which it was done which was like the mid like early 90s it wasn't like you know photoshop came out in 1990 hmm. right and it was done sometime you know maybe the third or photoshop 3 kind of era right anyway I'll find an image to that i'll find an image for that and i'll put it in the show notes because it's uh it's always been a bone of contention with the people who say that they allegedly landed on the moon yeah right yeah so. nobody we know oh so this is going <laughs> the show well i found the uh what if xkcd the question is what is the furthest one human being has ever been from every other living person and were they mm-hmm. lonely and it's a very as uh you know i really enjoy this site so it's really got a really good uh, diagram and everything and the quotes mm-hmm. from the astronauts at the end are very good so you can read up on that too and i like how sure. the diagram says earth probably and also yep definitely <laughs> a soundstage so you know, oh really okay yeah, yeah. You so what, have you put that put that link in the it's chat in the or? no it's in the it's in the notes, oh, sure notes. so okay. you can okay, uh, put cool. that in somewhere if you like i, I should i should note you know of course the author of xkcd is like a some kind of a physicist or something like that so okay he he means it very uh 
he's joking when he has his little jokes, but you know how those conspiracy theorists are. They'll latch onto anything. Yeah, yeah. We're not real rocket scientists. We just play them on the podcast. This is Uh, for entertainment purposes only. I'll say that for him because he's not here. (laughs) (laughs) I used to be a rocket scientist. What's that? I used to be a rocket scientist. Oh, really? When was that? Uh, When I was an undergrad, I worked on a solar wind sensor that is actually somewhere up in space flying around right now. Cool. And of course, you're not recording right now, are you? No, but I'm having some technical difficulties (laughs) here. Are you guys having a spinning beach ball with the uh, with the document, the Google Doc? No, no, no. You should close and open it again. Are you using yeah. uh, what browser are you using? You're holding it wrong. Probably. Can you get it on your phone? Oh. Yeah, Google Docs on the phone. It's a concept. You should probably look into it. Do they make you download the app, though, if you go to the website? Oh, that's true. They, I, I don't know if do. they make you. I'm just, uh, maybe they suggest it, but I don't know if they force you. Yeah. But I think well, I you know, I can't, I can't use on my on my iPhone 3 that I keep upstairs. I, I can't use Google Docs on it. Mm. Yeah, because it's not supported. Really should upgrade that thing. I did. I put a new battery in it and, you know, last last for days and days because it doesn't do anything. It just like I look at, you know, Instagram and Twitter and uh, Slack with it, right? Mm. <laughs> and weather. I check the weather. I'm looking at the photo of the astronauts in quarantine. That looks, I guess they're crowded around the window, but it looks like a really tiny capsule. I imagine. But isn't that Nixon standing outside talking to them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 He was totally not a crook. But that, again, yeah. they're crowded around the door, but it looks like very cramped in there. But I imagine if Actually, the shot no, were wider, of, you could see, I'm sure yeah, there's space in there. Yeah, it's the end of, it's, uh, it's the end of, like, it's like a, a Airstream. Um, yeah, it looks like RV. a trailer. It's, yeah, it looks like an RV. They're, they're at yeah. the end of it. They're looking at the back, at the back door. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, the photo just looks like, you know, and plus the window is, you know, smaller and they're crowding around the window so they can see us. So yeah. It just looks small, yeah. but yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, as you can imagine, Carol, every time she goes to like a value village or whatever and finds one or a library sale and finds a book on anything to do with, with the Apollo missions, she brings it home for me, right? Mm. So I've got all these, I've got all these uh, books written from like the late 50s or I guess mid 60s, I guess that say one day a man will land on the moon and it's got like the sort of hypothetical how they'll get there stuff, right? So it's funny because like, you know, 80% of it's actually factual in terms of what they could have done and at the very end of the book, I guess that, you know, the embargo hadn't been lifted so they couldn't publish the real story, right? So... Once again, the podcast Twitter account is at mtjc underscore podcast. Really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you could also For like three years now. Look who's yeah. talking. Smaps off with two P's and no uh, L or whatever. <laughs> Why would there be an L on Smaps? I don't know. No, no, you know, no one. No use. No extra U in there too. That's true. That's by design. You can also support the show by pledging any amount on Patreon.com slash mtjc. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time. Add your own oh. sign off here. <laughs> I'm slash 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 yeah. <laughs> that's commented out don't you guys know anything yeah <laughs> or am i supposed to use mark up here greg yeah mark do you actually use uh he's gonna super edit it i'm gonna i'm he, gonna rewrite it yeah thank you very much um do you use mark mark down mark no never yeah see you <laughs> and i are that would same. be too good we're, we're cut from the same cloth like i don't get it i mean i get it but i don't get it you know oh my god we have to talk about this next week or next time i'm on why you don't use markdown <sighs> <laughs> oh, maybe we should talk about why do you use Markdown? Ooh. Oh, well, because it's text and it's readable yeah, and so text. You can style it. Yeah, but you want to style it. Like it follows the classic, I don't know, whatever it was, Usenet days or something, ways of like putting cool. fake italics and things like that and puts it oh, all in right. line. And so, it, and, Fun- and it's like you can just read it. Over form, Greg. No, because if you just want to read it as text, like you would write ASCII plain text like that anyway. You would put stars around things you want to emphasize, right? The links and whatever, that's just extra. Uh, 
Uh, that makes we, sense. We, yeah. we can go on to that later. But you would put stars around things, and <laughs> I used to underline things by surrounding it with underscores. Like that's just stuff people did. And, oh, really? And if you want to just read it as text, you're good. Or if you want to put it on the web, since we all use the web, then it'll make HTML tags out of them. Like what's wrong with that? It's just an extra helper. So I think it's well, great. I ne- I ne- but I never do any of that stuff. You never do any <laughs> of that stuff. Bolding or italics or whatever. Oh, or, or right stuff, on the web. Putting stuff on the web. Okay. Well then, you know, <laughs> like why? Uh, you know, if it's like you just sit at home on your iPad and write text notes to yourself, but should you use Markdown? Like, no, I'm not saying like everybody, the world should use Markdown. <laughs> well, it sounded like that's what you were saying. No, <laughs> I was just saying it's uh, very handy if you're doing writing, any kind of writing. <laughs> well, it makes sense now that you not, now that you've explained it that way with the whole Usenet thing, because I do remember those days when you really only had one type of text, like, you know, yeah. a, a courier type font and yeah. you know, no kerning, no letting to sort of communicate your I thoughts, mean, I did right? the slashes. I would do a forward slash, a word forward slash for italics, because it was like the slashes were pushing it forward. You know what I mean? Right. Can right. you imagine what that looks like? That was my way of doing italics back in the old okay. days, but now it's okay. like stars over. Oh, and that in bullet points, right? If you do star space or hyphen space or right. whatever, and that is like fake bullet points. And again, if you use Markdown, that will, that that's fine. That reads perfectly fine in plain text. But if you want to, again, post on the web, it'll do the UL and L- ugly LI tags and it'll do all that stuff for you. So right. it's just, yeah, you know, yeah. mm, nice. I mean, yeah, the I'm... links links are ugly. Images are ugly. Uh, lots of other stuff is ugly. Markdown tables is kind of madness, but I'm just talking about the, the basics and like headers and bold and that kind of stuff. I'm, that's the stuff that I, that I use. So I saw a, po- a, a post today and it came through an email. It was it was written back in June, but um, remember, when we, I think last time you were on, we talked about the um, the developer uh, feedback from Stack Overflow, right, for 2017? Do you remember that? Oh, the survey, yeah, yeah. Yeah, did we not talk about the fact that people who use spaces make more money than people who use tabs? <laughs> it was people who use spaces, I think, were more eight percent experienced. More was yeah. it? Was it there money? Yeah, I think they were more experienced. Was why like newer developers tended to use tabs, right? And with developers more with more experience tended to use spaces, and that's why developers more with more experience also happen to make more money. So right, that was right. the line to draw between them. Yeah, yeah, I think there was yeah because because I saw a post today and it, but it was published in June saying that you know people who use spaces make more money than people who use tabs. That was the 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 the, the, the clickbaity link, right? Yeah, yeah. But and, and I wasn't sure. I actually was for a second there, put it in, and then I remembered. I'm sure we talked about this because that was the last time you were. I think one of the last times you were on the show, right? Was was for that, right? Um, it was yeah, a few. I don't know. Was I, I, I use spaces that. all the time. Pretty much any time I need to separate one word from another word, I use a space. Do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I what use you guys do? for all that. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even indent anymore. Remember when you like when you were a kid and you wrote paragraphs and you indented the first line of the yeah. paragraph? Like yeah. I don't even do that anymore when I write. Well, that was for type. That was for typewriting. Like it was. We were taught to do that, right? Yeah. And, but, and you would hit the tab key to do that. Yeah. But like in these days, like if you're writing an email and it's a long email with paragraphs. Like, do you, do you indent the first line of the no. paragraph? No. No. Like, even when I'm writing a Word doc, like a serious Word document for work, I don't, nobody, I don't see anybody well, doing so that. Well, so it's funny that you say that because I found an old essay that I wrote in like 1983 or something like that, 82. And it's it's all written, it's, it, I probably wrote it on a typewriter. That's how, like, I, how lazy I was. I would just do the final copy all at once, right? Hmm. Um, but yeah, it would have all been indented. And I think that because it, it was probably for university, it probably had like two, two, like double line spacing and all that kind of stuff too right yeah yeah so i mean that was the, it's funny and the reason i'm saying this is because back then when we actually used typewriters to actually produce our work we had there was a whole sort of etiquette to that and i think that in the same way that c 
saving stuff to a floppy disk, you know, has sort of become an archaic thing to do, right? Uh, Xavier and I were digging through the computers that we, that my old laptops and stuff like that, we were, and he was looking at what's, what's this? Oh, it's a floppy drive, right? And um, in the same sense, like, so, so we, the way we, when we used it, a physical typewriter with mechanical keys and all that kind of stuff and, you know, paper, hammers hitting paper, there was one, there was sort of a style that you had to use. And that, I think that now that we're all, ty- you, know, you know, touch typing into keyboards and, you know, now as it, you just went through with the markdown analogy, um, it's kind of, it's kind of that whole sort of paradigm has changed and there's a whole new etiquette to doing it, right? I wonder how kids write essays these days, like uh, in high school, if they write an oh, essay, what does it look have, like? They all have MacBooks and they all have iPads and stuff like that. Do they like email it in or do they still print stuff out? You know, essentially I could, I could find out because my, because I have, um, there's four kids right now going through that. So there's a 12 year old, a 13 year old, a 14 year old, a 15 year old who, you know, okay. are, are within like my two nephews and my two grandsons. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said, uh, a MacBook is required kind of thing, right? Or, or PC of some type, right? I'm like, do they like, e- like, do they just put it in the body of an email? Do they send a PDF to their teachers or even like university? Like, do you email your a PDF to your professor? I think yeah, I I'm did pretty, that pretty, at I'm the tail sure end, at the tail end of my undergraduate career. I think I did email a PDF to, and I thought this was, it was like the most amazing thing ever. But well, is that like commonplace now? My sister-in-law is, is a doctor. Chloe Atkins is a professor at the University of Calgary or was. Um, I can ask her right now. Give me one second. I'm just curious about how that, because uh, I remember. Yeah, I if, like even middle age, middle, middle school age kids, do they? Yeah. Remember if you had to write a paper, you had to, you wrote it like freehand and cursive? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Like how does that work? They don't now? even, or, they don't even teach, teach cursive anymore in school. Yeah. Really? You yeah, it, they right? don't. Yeah. And I remember again at the tail end, they wanted you to submit by PDF or by like text because they would run it through those plagiarism checkers. Oh, and right. then there was, there was a big outcry of like, wait a minute, I'm submitting my paper, but I'm also adding to this company's database, like to help them out. And there was some kind of, you know, like the school is paying for the service, but the company is benefiting because they're getting this building up a database of papers based on what we're mm-hmm. submitting. So like, what the hell? And I don't know what happened with that, but I assume they're still using it. But um, yeah, so they wanted the plagiarism checker too, if you hmm. submit it in like soft copy. Um, yeah. So I wonder how that works now. Well, I know, I know that this, like I was just, this essay I was talking about that's on typewritten paper. Um, I'm sure that I put a big bibliography in that thing because I know I plagiarized that piece, right? Did you well, do it's not plagiarism if you use it, if you have a bibliography. That's what I mean. But like, you know, when it, I, I would, you know, I don't think I rewrote sentences out of, out of passages that I picked up. Right. And I might've put quotations around them if I was actually directly quoting them. Right. So I, I have to go that's, look at it. That's okay. Then. Yeah. I mean, you might not get a good grade, but, uh, but it's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's not, uh, <laughs> it's not academic dishonesty at least, uh, right, but it may be a right. bad paper. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Well, back then it was, it's funny cause we used to, uh, we used to have to go to the library and you couldn't, some books you couldn't take out of the library. So we'd use these big photocopiers and we'd pay five cents a page to photocopy these, these, uh, things. And I think that I wrote an essay on the TD center, which is having its 50th anniversary. And that's why I'm trying to find this essay, but in the essay are photocopied pictures out of books. And, and of course they had a certain style to them, right? Because of how photocopiers worked back then, right? They were just black and white jobs, right? Five cents. Mi- wow. Mimeograph back then. <laughs> Mimeograph. Yeah. Did you have to crank the hand, crank them? Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. I did some of those maybe we got things in, in grade school. Like, you know, I'd draw them all out and then take them off and, and you'd always want to smell the paper as it came yeah, back. Yeah, it had that really distinctive smell, that blue smell. Yeah. 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 The blue smell? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, what else would you call it, right? Uh, I yeah. have no idea. I think yeah. it was like uh, sort of an alcohol kind of thing or something like that, wasn't it? Because it would evaporate oh, pretty quickly, yeah. right? Yeah, it yeah. Wasn't like, it wasn't like sniffing glue or anything, was it? No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah. Mind you, the markers back then, the you know, the magic markers, you could get pretty high on those. <laughs> 
<laughs> not that you would try to. I mean, you know, yeah. I, I'm sure there were people who did that, right? Because there's the whole glue sniffing. Yeah. Uh, Notice stuff. what he said, Greg. He said, not that you would try that. Yes. Because yeah. I would not. <laughs> yeah. It was a different time. It was the 70s, you know. Yeah. Oh, well, so I work, when I worked in screen printing in my one of my first jobs, um, we used to like, close the screens up with lacquer, right? Because they would have mm-hmm. to, you know, have long runs. And um, we had, uh, we used to, like, it, it was it, literally the kind of um, lacquer we used was actually called dope. And it's what they used to use to seal the airplanes back in, you know, in, in when they were made out of canvas and stuff like that, right? Mm. So they'd be watertight and airtight. Yeah. Um, but that stuff, it was heavier than air. And, you know, so if you dropped a tool on the floor and you bent down to pick it up, you'd get like a big waft of this stuff. And um, this is before we knew any, we were wise enough to know anything about health and safety. And, uh, <laughs> No, seriously, we we actually I was one of the I was in a unionized place, and and one of the guys um, did a work stoppage or whatever you call it. I forget. And Ministry of Labor came in. And we had to get like respirators and and have you know a big giant fan that pulled all the air out and all that kind of stuff, right? So I was going to uh, say Mark is in the Mark was in the semiconductor business, so he knows all about doping, <laughs> right? Yeah, I do. As a matter of fact, yeah. So what's doping, doping is doping is when well, so so if you have a a, a very pure crystal semiconductor, uh, there's it's, it has very low electrical conductivity, so it's not really good for much. Uh, so the way they make it good for something is is they mix in uh, a relatively small amount of impurities in with the crystal. And so those impurities become either suppliers of excess electrons or excess holes, and they call that doping. So, And the more of these impurities you have, the higher the conductivity is, the electrical conductivity. Oh, really? Okay. Well, since it, you have that it's, pure it's, material it's and you're, you're doping term. it. Yeah, it is. That's, that's yep. what I'm saying. Mark knows all yep. about it. Yep, yep. But it's not the same as what I was talking about, dope. Because the stuff, no. the lacquer I'm talking about was the same stuff people used to put in in paper bags and then sniff. Yeah, yeah. No, and you became that. a dope fiend because you were into that stuff. Right? Dope fiend. So, Mark, if they call it doping, they don't call the material dope. No, they don't. Yeah, yeah. I know. They call, I think they call them impurities, right? Or that's what I've heard, at least. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the material itself sort of doesn't exist outside of the crystal. I mean, it does. There's a source of it, but you know, before it goes in, it's just a you know a bunch of boron gas or something like that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that's but you know. If the, the machine that does the doping, it's like, oh, no, we need to refill it with more dope. Like, what's the word they use? You know, that's a good question. That's a really good question. I don't know. OK, I just hope never, it might you never know. really had a name. No. <laughs> the impurities canister. That's what you guys called it. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. The canister of stuff that becomes dope, dopant. But oh, dope it is what they call it. They call it dopant. dopant. As soon as you said dopant. that, I'm like, maybe that's it. That's yeah. That's no, that is that's dope. absolutely it. Dopant. Yeah. Dopant. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. I have to think about whether I like that or not. So my sister says real time feedback that yes kids do email their assignments in all the time okay that makes sense because how else would you like uh, like email plain text in the body of the email or they email like a pdf because then that would be a vector for like, that would be a vector for like malware and stuff right you could like uh denial of service your teachers with a oh well we maliciously we crafted about, pdf you know i think we talked about this when we talked about the microsoft virus stuff that was going around or not the microsoft virus the yeah the was it wanna cry i'm sure that uh, that schools are, are have pretty week on IT, right? So waiting for the three dots to finish typing. Here we go. What does she say? Probably has Word documents, I would think, right? Which with macros turned on. <laughs> oh, man. Word macros. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. bad when Microsoft builds into their software, like, this document has macros. Would you like to disable macros? And it's like, yes, this is the really? button. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, uh, they had to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, it's bad when it reaches that point where even the company, the vendor is like, this has a feature that we built, but you should not use it. Please, you should probably disable it unless it's from like a trusted really? source. Wow. But I remember that. Yeah. Those are pretty much the first 
first viruses that got at least any mainstream press, the word yeah. viruses. Yeah. Because yeah. before then, email, was, there were no attachments, right? It was just text. And then people started attaching text documents or, you know, like Word documents and things like that to their to their emails. Mm-hmm. And that's where the viruses started, as I recall. That would so, have been uh, early 90s, probably. For the vi- original viruses? Yeah, the early viruses. Yeah, Yeah. so apparently the uh, the two nephews send uh, their work in Word documents. Mm. So that's who's still buying all those 365 licenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To schools, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> or, yeah, you know, they get copies that fell off the truck or whatever, too, I'm sure. Yeah. The kids well, at home, I mean, not the schools, the kids at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.